Okay. Well, we've, we have studied the first 11 disciples, and we know quite a bit about some of them, and others we know very little or almost nothing about them other than their names. But we've tried to look at their personalities and their character and how they fit into the scheme of things and the plan of their, our Lord and why they were selected for such an incredibly marvelous task. The one thing I think that we've concluded is they generally were unqualified. Uh, they were common men, just like us, men whom God had to transform in order to make them into what he wanted them to be. And God did that, and they became his specially sent apostles who carried the Je gospel of Jesus Christ to a dark world. Every one of them, other than John, died a martyr's death, and John died in his late 90s after living in exile for many years on the island of Patmos. As believers in Christ today, we are living testimonies to their success. Uh, operating by the power of the Spirit of God, they brought about that which Christ had asked them to do. They built his church, and they are a remarkable group. But one of them stands out against the background of all the others. <clears throat> he stands out as a lonely, tragic misfit, the epitome of human disaster. Uh, he's the vilest, most wicked man in the Bible, a man who Jesus himself referred to in John 17, 12 as the son of perdition. Uh, he is, of course, Judas Iscariot. He's listed last in every one of the list of the disciples you find in the Synoptic Gospels and always with a comment about his betraying Jesus. Uh, in Acts 1, we're told not only that he betrayed Jesus, but we're given the details of his death, which we will get to later. Uh, and we're told that he turned aside to his own place. In other words, Judas defected from his place among the apostles, chose to go to his own place, which is a special place in hell reserved for him. His betrayal of Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh, was the most heinous crime ever committed, and by his own choosing, he went to eternal hell. Uh, the, stark, the, the dark story of Judas is a blight on the page of human history. Uh, although there is much we know, there is much mystery and darkness surrounding Judas that perhaps we'll never know. Uh, his name became a byword for betrayal. Uh, his name is so despised that no one ever names their child Judas. Um, even though there are many, there, there's some great guys named Judas in the Bible, including the other apostle, Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. Uh, no one ever chooses to name their child Judas because of its connection to a Judas Iscariot. They might name their child Jude or, or Judah, but not Judas. Uh, Judas' sin against Jesus is considered so vile that in Dante's famous classic, The Divine Comedy, in the first part, which is known as the Inferno, uh, which describes Dante's imaginary journey into hell, he depicts Judas as occupying the lowest level of hell, fit only for Lucifer himself. Uh, Judas was not even allowed to rise to the caverns where the rest of the damned reside. He, he was in the deepest pit. Uh, that is how vile <coughs> most of Christendom has seen Judas Iscariot to be as the worst of all humans ever born. In fact, Jesus himself said it would have been better if he had never been born. 
after the mention of his death in the first chapter of Acts, uh, he disappears from Holy Scripture, never to be mentioned again. Now, I believe that this man can teach us some profound lessons that we need to learn well. So let's examine what the Bible says about him. First of all, uh, his name Judas was a common name. Uh, it's simply a form of Judah, the land of God's people. Some scholars say it means Yahweh leads. Others think it refers to one who's worthy of praise. Uh, regardless of its meaning, there's never a, anyone who was more obviously led by Satan than was Judas. And it, if, any, if it means one worthy of praise, there was never one who was more unworthy of praise than Judas. The name Iscariot means man of Kiriath. Uh, that was a small town in Judea, about 24 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, it's mentioned in Joshua 15, 25. Uh, Judas is the only disciple whose name includes a geographical identification. Uh, according to John 13, 26, his father was named Simon. So the question is, why is he identified geographically rather than uh, calling him Judas, the son of Simon? Uh, well, you know, everybody else is identified that way, but not him. Well, possibly because he was the only non-Galilean. Uh, all the others, including Jesus, came from Galilee up in the north, while he came from down south in Judea. That may indicate that from the very beginning, Judas was never really one of the boys, uh, that he didn't fit in with the rest of them very well, and it may explain why he's in the fourth grouping of the disciples which those who were not as intimate with Jesus as were the others. Also, the Judean Jews generally considered themselves to be greatly superior to the rural Jews of the north uh, and looked down on them as being uneducated and unrefined. And so consequently, there may have been a certain amount of pride involved, which deepened as time went on. As far as his call to be one of the twelve, the only thing we know is found in Mark 3, 13 to 19, where we are told that Jesus went up on a mountain there in Galilee and summoned those who he, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And it says that he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. And Judas Iscariot was one of those 12 that Jesus appointed. Beyond that, we don't know if there was ever a time when Jesus specifically told him, follow me like he did with other members of the Twelve, or if Judas was just one of the many people who would attach themselves to Jesus and his disciples as his disciples, as his learners, his students, and were following him around Galilee. Uh, we know he wanted to be involved, but we don't know how it was that he attached himself to Jesus. Apparently, he was attracted to Jesus. That's obvious. Uh, he followed him. He stayed with him. He stayed with him a lot longer than a lot of the other false apostles who bailed out much earlier than this. Uh, in fact, you'll recall the passage in John 6 uh, where Jesus demanded total commitment out of them. And uh, it says that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. But the 12 remained. And so even when Jesus called for an all-out commitment even when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, even when he made 
total demands on them, and many of them left, Judas stuck it out. He stayed. He, so he was definitely attracted to Jesus. I don't think he was particularly attracted by the spiritual aspects that Jesus taught. I think he was attracted on the self-centered level. I think it was <clears throat> what he believed Jesus could do for him that drew him to Jesus. He saw the power of Jesus. He believed that this man would bring the kingdom. But he was not interested in the kingdom for Christ's sake. Rather, he was interested in, that, in the kingdom for what he might gain from it if he were a part of the inner circle. Uh, so he's motivated by selfishness. Uh, but nonetheless, he stays in a half-hearted way. I don't think that if you asked Judas why he followed Jesus, he would have he would have never just blurted out, well, I'm planning to be a big shot in the kingdoms that this guy's going to set up. Yeah, but in his heart, that was his desire. Uh, he figured that Jesus would overthrow Rome and those who were a part of his 12-man team would be the big shots, and that was his goal. I think that if you would ask Jesus, Judas at any point during the first half of Jesus' ministry, perhaps even the first two years, if he would ever betray Jesus, he probably would have insisted that he would not. Uh, deep in his heart, he was like many other disciples, still trying to figure out exactly who Jesus was when he was going to establish his kingdom and wondering what his role would be in that kingdom. Uh, but his heart was clearly never completely committed to Jesus uh, or the group of disciples, as evidenced by the fact that the entire time that he's with them, he was pilfering the money that was intended for all of their benefit. Uh, he was stealing it for himself. His heart was still focused on his own desires and not those of Jesus and others. And I think that when things were uh, going, not going as quickly as he thought they should, uh, and Jesus wasn't taking actions to establish his kingdom, and he was still just a poor rabbi tramping around the countryside doing a lot of teaching, for at least the last year of Jesus' ministry, Judas was contemplating some very evil thoughts in his mind about what it would take to get out of this situation of which he was a part. Uh, his heart was never changed, and it only grew more evil over time as he recognized that things were not going as he desired. Now, the question that always seems to come up is, well, why in the world did Jesus choose Judas to be one of the twelve? I mean, if he's God who knows all, he certainly would have known that Judas was going to betray him, and yet he still chose him. Why? Well, the answer is simply because that Jesus chose Judas because that was God's foreordained plan in order for Jesus to become the substitutionary sacrifice for the sinners who'd been chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world. Uh, you see, John 6.64 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. <clears throat> and Jesus even told the disciples a year or more before his betrayal, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? That's John 6.70. So when Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve, he was doing so to fulfill prophecy and to accomplish God's sovereign purposes. Back in Psalm 41.9, David had predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. 
It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, if you think, well, David's talking about Absalom's betrayal of him there. How do we know he's predicting the betrayal of the Messiah? Because Jesus said it was speaking of himself. In John 13, 18, at the Last Supper, after telling the disciples that those who obey him are blessed, he said, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting David's psalm there and said it was a prophecy of his own betrayal. In Psalm 55, 12 to 14, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And then in verses 20 and 21, the psalmist says, He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Uh, he was speaking of treachery, hypocrisy, and betrayal from a messianic perspective. And then, if you go to the prophecy of Zechariah 11, as the prophet speaks of the same event, it gets even more specific. Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. It says, I said to him, to the, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I have, was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Uh, so you see a picture of negotiations over payment of 30 shekels of silver that were later thrown to the potter in the house of the Lord. It's a very detailed prophecy uh, and one which one might consider strange because, I mean, why is there a potter in the house of the Lord? Well, we shall see. Uh, so the Messiah was to be betrayed by his familiar friend for 30 pieces of silver. New Testament simply records the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So when Jesus chose Judas, he knew he was the betrayer and he knew the prophecies about his betrayal. So he understood the entire plan and he chose him because of that plan. Now let's turn to John 17, 12. <clears throat> and here we see Jesus praying his great high priestly prayer on behalf of the disciples. And here's what he prays. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus says, I kept them and none perished but the son of perdition. That's a Hebrew idiom, meaning someone who has been appointed to destruction. It refers to someone whose nature it is to be condemned to destruction, who is always damned, always condemned. Uh, it isn't someone who simply lost his way. Rather, is someone whose very nature was lost from the beginning. Uh, Jesus guarded and kept all the disciples except the one who was condemned to destruction from the beginning. Why? So, look at what he says. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
Judas, in other words, Jesus is saying to God the Father, Judas is lost because it is the fulfillment of Scripture. So Jesus chose Judas because he knew the Scripture, and so he chose him to be the fulfillment of the Scripture. That was the plan. So what you have here is a paradox. You say, well, if it was God's plan, then is Judas responsible? Yes. Uh, you say, well, how can God predetermine that, set up the plan, make all of the prophecies, fit Judas into them, pull it off, and then hold Judas responsible? I don't know. But that's exactly what God does. You have to stop trying to rescue God from his own theology. How can he do that? I don't understand. But because the infinite mind of God is above my own. But I do understand very clearly what the Bible says. So for your own interest in trying to resolve the problem, listen to Luke 22, 21 and 22. The setting is the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. In other words, he's here, sitting with me. Now listen to verse 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. In other words, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put to death. And it all has been determined. But, and here it comes, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So on the one hand, Christ's betrayal and death were determined. On the other hand, Judas is responsible. So it is the same in our salvation. If you're saved, it's because it was determined before the foundations of the world. And if you're lost, you're responsible. Now, if you can't resolve those two, don't feel bad. No one else who has ever lived can either. <clears throat> Look over at Acts 2 for a moment, and we'll see an illustration of this. Acts 2. Don't try to resolve these. Just let them be what they are and accept that your finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite mind of God. In Acts 2, Peter's giving a sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's indicting the people for killing the Messiah, and he identifies the Messiah in verse 22 as Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says in verse 23, that this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So it was God's plan from eternity past to sacrifice his son on behalf of sinners. God had determined it before. All of the foreknowledge and planning of God brought it to pass. God delivered him over. And Judas was a part of that plan from the beginning. And yet, Peter says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. At the same time, Judas himself chose to betray Jesus. He was not an automaton who just robotically fulfilled the scriptures. The overruling power and providence of God can allow such a man as Judas to wish to follow Christ, to choose to follow Christ, and yet become the fulfillment of the divine plan to betray Jesus and still have his own choice and still be responsible for his actions. That is the power and wisdom of God. I'm reminded of Romans 11.33. 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So don't try to figure it out. Just accept that scripture teaches both and that in God's infinite mind, they fit together perfectly. Now, outwardly, Judas didn't appear to have a defective character. I'm sure of that. In fact, he must have had qualities and capabilities, capacities, which commended him. For three years, he was with the disciples, and they never detected anything. In fact, in John 13, at the Last Supper in the upper room, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. You remember how all the disciples responded? Did they say, is it Judas? <laughs> no. Verse 22 says the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Both Matthew and Mark record that each one of them began to say to him, surely not I. Why? Because they had no more reason to suspect Judas than they had to suspect themselves. They knew better about themselves and they assumed better about Judas. He was a fantastic hypocrite. He was so good at it that they made him the treasurer of the group. That's how much they trusted him. And it was only after his death that they discovered he was stealing from the money box. You say, well, maybe they didn't know and he actually came from a rotten, sinful, vile background. Seems like he would have had to have that kind of background to do what Jesus to do to Jesus what he did and to steal money from that was intended to support Jesus and the disciples. Well, maybe it, he was, but maybe it wasn't any worse than any of the other guys. It's hard to be much worse than Matthew, who was an extortionist, a thief, and took bribes. It's hard to be much worse than Simon the Zealot, who was an assassin. So they were all kind of a crummy bunch, if you look at it that way. And Judas must have put on an act to end all acts. It's interesting to me that he never had a word to say in the whole biblical record until he complains about Mary pouring a perfume on Jesus in Bethany as being a waste of money. I'm sure he usually guarded his mouth to keep up that ruse, but when he saw a missed opportunity to add more money to the money box that he could then pilfer, he spoke up. Uh, he had the same potential as any of the others. He, he was of the same raw material. He was no more unqualified than anyone else. Uh, but as Charles Spurgeon said, the same sun that, which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And while the other disciples were being melted and molded, he was being hardened. Uh, he was probably young, a somewhat devout Jew, a zealous Jew, patriotic Jew, who didn't want the Romans to rule. He saw an opportunity to follow this man. He believed this man was the Messiah and that he would set up a kingdom. And the kingdom would be earthly. He would overthrow Rome, put out the conquerors, establish the kingdom of Israel. And then days of prosperity and glory would come. For Judas, it was all earthly and materialistic. And he saw the possibility of getting in on the gravy train. He was never really drawn to believe and love Jesus. He, he only saw Jesus as a means to an end, as a way to gain power and glory and riches for himself. He thought that even though this band of men didn't have a lot of money, 
Jesus was attracting a lot of followers. He was healing a lot of people, performing a lot of miracles, and he was keeping, he kept talking about the coming kingdom. So Judas thought that if he just hung around long enough, Jesus would eventually lead the revolution against Rome and he would be on it. He recognized that Jesus' power was far greater than anything Rome could resist or repress. So he was willing to make the investment of a few years for a dividend that he thought would be tremendous. So Jesus chose him because that was the plan. But he chose he chose Jesus of his own will because he saw it as a road to personal prosperity. And so we would summarize by saying this about his call. Jesus chose Judas because of God's eternal plan, and yet he offered Judas every opportunity not to fulfill it. Uh, Judas gave the parable in Luke 16 of the unjust steward, a man who wasted his opportunity to Judas. He gave the parable of in Matthew 22 of the man who showed up at the wedding feast without the proper wedding clothes to Judas. He gave the parables about greed and money to Judas. And then he gave lessons about pride to the disciples. Judas was included. He even told them, one of you is a devil in John 670 to warn Judas. But Judas never listened, never applied anything and just kept up his deceit. The relationship of the rest of the disciples to Judas is kind of interesting. He's in group four. Uh, he's in the last group in the case he wasn't a particularly intimate disciple of Christ. I imagine he didn't fit in because he was the only non-Galilean, so he just hung out on the fringe, you might say. I don't think he ever had a meaningful relationship with the rest of them. They gave him the job of taking care of the money box, probably because he had an aptitude for finances. And certainly that's what he was after. And they picked up on his knowledge of money handling. And as we learn later on in scripture, he was happy to be entrusted with it because he was pilfering money out of it. So three years go by and Judas keeps hoping that any minute Jesus is going to grab the kingdom. He sees miracle after miracle after miracle. And he's on all of all these things and he knows the power was there to do it. He anticipates that at any moment Jesus is going to... Over, uh, establish his kingdom and overthrow Rome and bring prosperity and riches for those who are part of his inner circle. So Judas just keeps hanging in there, hanging in there, waiting for the kingdom to happen with a heart filled with greed and avarice. Let me add that in a certain sense, he's no different than the other 11. They all believed that the Messiah had come. They all believed the Messiah would bring an earthly kingdom. They all believed Messiah would overthrow Rome, they would enter into the glory of the kingdom. They all believed that they had met the Lion of the tribe of Judah. What they didn't understand is that before he became the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he had to be the Lamb that was slain. And he talked about giving his life and dying and being lifted up. Can you imagine that whenever he talked about that, I'm sure Judas is sitting here thinking, what in the world is this? Let's look at John 12 and follow the sequence there. John 12. We're in the final week before the crucifixion. There's an incident at Bethany that unmasked Judas' real character. The other disciples didn't pick up on it because they often thought the same way he did. Plus, he's a master at disguising his own true nature. In John 12, 3, Mary, the mother of Lazarus, I'm sorry, the sister of Lazarus, takes a pound, that was a Roman pound, which was about 12 ounces, 
of very expensive perfume made of pure nard that would have been imported from the Far East, perhaps as far as India. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. She's just pouring out her love for Jesus. And then verses 4 and 5 says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, notice there that he was already intending to betray Jesus at this point, uh, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Those are the first words of Judas ever recorded in Scripture. Uh, his only other words are his last words, recorded in Matthew 27, 8. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But now look, he, he, he looks at Mary's act of love, and all he can think about is how much money that perfume is worth. It was worth almost a year's worth of wages for the average worker in those days. And all he could see was a missed opportunity to sell it and then steal it out of the money box that he carried. He's already intending to betray Jesus. So in his thinking, if they had sold the perfume, he would be able to betray Jesus and make off with all this extra money. And we know that's the case because John tells us in verse 6 that he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And it wasn't just Judas who jumped on Mary about doing that. In the parallel account in Mark 14, we learned that some of the other disciples joined in. Apparently, Judas' contrived indignation was so persuasive that some of the other disciples joined in and indignantly said the same thing to her. What a waste. We could have sold that money and given the, the, that perfume and given the money to the poor. And Mark adds that they were scolding her. But Jesus stepped in and defended Mary, and he says, let her alone. That's an imperative command in the Greek. Jesus orders Judas to shut up and stop his harassment of Mary. Uh, the verb is a second person singular there. You leave her alone. So Jesus was specifically addressing Judas. And he went on to say, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be also be spoken of in memory of her. Well, to be told to shut up by Jesus and that Mary's actions were so commendable that everyone would speak of them was just too much for Judas. He's done with Jesus. So Mark tells us that he left right then to go to the chief priests and talk to them about betraying Jesus. Luke 22 says that they agreed to give him money to do such and he began looking for the right opportunity to do so. So his satanic thoughts were already centered on bringing about Jesus' death. So you cannot excuse Judas in any way. This was premeditated betrayal and murder. Can you imagine that kind of a guy? Uh, here's a poor band of people going around doing good, and he's stealing out of their resources all the while. Uh, he had absolutely no love or affection for them. He's a greedy materialist. And he's only concerned about one thing, and that was what he could get for himself, and he didn't care how he got it. And if he wasn't going to get the whole kingdom, he was going to get a few bucks in the process of getting out. That's the basic motive of Judas. And through history, some people have tried to ascribe to him a good motive or, or to lessen his treacherous betrayal as merely the misguided actions 
of a man who misunderstood Jesus. But you cannot ascribe to Judas a good motive or excuse his actions because of two reasons. One, Jesus said, one of you is a devil. John 6:70. And two, before he betrayed Jesus, we're told that Satan then entered into him. There was nothing good about him. He was evil and wretched. Jesus knew the true nature of his heart, and he spoke only the truth, so you cannot excuse Judas in any way. So that encounter with Mary and Jesus occurred, and Judas immediately left Bethany and brought about the first <coughs> fatal interview with the chief priest. And he negotiated with them, as foretold 550 years earlier in Zechariah 11, for 30 pieces of silver. And so the Lord was both anointed out of love and betrayed out of hate on the very same night. Uh, and the same is still true today. People either enthrone him or they betray him. There is no middle ground. You're either Judas or you're Mary. Uh, you either pour out your love to him or you sell him for whatever price you have determined to be proper. So he finally reached the point at which he planned to betray Jesus to get what financial benefit he could out of the authorities and cut his losses, and he starts planning to betray Jesus. But the thing that probably was probably the final straw, the thing that probably destroyed any hopes that might have been in Judas' mind was the triumphal entry. Uh, the very next day after he approached the chief priest, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And when he did that, Verse 13 says the crowd took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Judas had to be, have been walking along in the back thinking, how am I going to be able to destroy, to betray him now? These people want to make him king. If that happens today, it ruined all my plans. What am I going to do? And then Jesus gets off the donkey, and shortly thereafter, Philip and Andrew bring a group of Greeks to meet him, and Jesus tells them the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'll bet Judas' heart skipped a beat at that point. What am I going to do? I'll lose all the money I was promised by the chief priest. However, if this guy's going to establish the kingdom today and I play my cards right, maybe I can still get a sweet deal for myself. But then Jesus says this. Starting verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And just a couple of moments later, he says, now, verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And John adds the comment by this, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. In other words, Jesus is using a euphemism for being crucified, he would be lifted up off the ground onto a cross. So he says, I have to die. And I believe that was the last straw for Judas. 
At that point, I think he knew it was over. He'd heard Jesus say similar things before. But when the crowd who had received Jesus with such adulation, Jesus must have been wondering, Judas must have been wondering if he'd made a mistake. But suddenly Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. And I think that was the final nail in the coffin, as it were, for Judas. And that's what made it clear to him there wasn't going to be any kingdom in his future if he stuck around with Jesus. When Jesus turned his back on the crown offered by the multitude, Judas finalized his rejection of Jesus. He could no longer restrain his vile, wretched motives for self-glory and gain. He was the epitome of a crass materialist. The other disciples displayed worldly behavior, but it was overcome by the love of Christ. But that never happened in Judas' life. Greed and selfishness and materialism and worldliness conquered love. Others became less and less corrupt, and he became more and more corrupt and greedier. He had at the root of his character a terrible, terrible passion. He was never willing to relinquish it. Eventually, he was confirmed in his own way to the point that he permanently closed the door to God's grace. Now, let's move on in the text to John 13. Two days after Judas initiated the scheme with the chief priest to betray Jesus, he's meeting in the upper room with his disciples. They've gone from Bethany to this place, and Judas has worked out his deal with the chief priests, and now he's rejoined the group to look for an opportunity to portray Jesus. And he comes back, and in what I consider the most gracious demonstration of servanthood in all of human history, Jesus washes Judas' feet. He is there sitting among the disciples, and Jesus washed all their feet. Can you imagine? Like the lowest of servants, he washed the feet of the man he knew was about to betray him. But when Peter objected in verse 10, Jesus says, you, and that's plural there, are clean, but not all of you. In other words, you disciples are clean, but there's one who isn't. And he's beginning to point out Judas. And John notes in verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Look at verses 18 and 19. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. He wanted them to know that he knew so that when it happened, they would say only God could have known about this before it happened. And then in verse 21, he tells him directly, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And verse 22 says, they're all at a loss to know which one he's speaking. And Judas was such a deceptive hypocrite that it, was, it wasn't obvious who the betrayer was. And if Jesus knew, he had to be supernatural. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. He always uses that term to refer to himself. <clears throat> So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? I think Peter asked because he knew he was a sinner of the first magnitude. And I think he was just checking to find out if it was going to be him since he had so many other failures. Uh, verse 26, Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You say, well, 
why didn't, why didn't John jump up and yell, it's Judas? Because I think Jesus sovereignly prevented John from fully understanding what was happening. I'll explain why in a moment. So then verse 27 says, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But look at verse 28. Now, no one of those uh, reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. No one knew why he sent him away. Verse 29 says, They thought he may have been sending Judas out to buy more food or to give money to the poor. So that's why I think that in that moment, Jesus sovereignly prevented John from understanding what he meant. Uh, perhaps John was expecting Jesus to say something more that would identify his betrayer more clearly than what he said. Maybe John was confused because Judas was such a consummate deceiver. John thought, oh, nah, not Judas. He can't be the one. For whatever reason, John didn't say a word. But like the others, he thought, Jesus sent Judas out to buy more food or to assist the poor. But it was over now. The door shut. Satan enters Judas. I can't imagine anything more horrifying. It's one thing to be demon-possessed. It's something altogether worse to have Satan himself possess an individual. Uh, I mean, what kind of people are they whom Satan himself indwells? It must, he must be there for a really important reason, wouldn't you think? Well, it's true. It is. Satan himself attacks individuals when his purpose is to destroy something that is essential to the work of God. So that doesn't happen very often. There are a lot of people who think they're essential to the work of God aren't nearly so significant that Satan himself would attack them. Uh, he, he would leave one or more of his demons to do that. Uh, we see in Acts 5 that it was Satan who influenced Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit about the amount of money they'd promised to give the Lord's work. You see, Satan wanted to infiltrate the church and destroy it from the very outset. So God took their lives in order to cause the rest of the church to realize the significance of lying to him. And it purified the church. I certainly can't prove it, but I would think it may have been Satan himself who indwelled Adolf Hitler in his efforts to completely wipe out the Jewish people. God has made eternal and immutable promises to his chosen people, and so they must be preserved as a nation and if Satan could succeed in destroying the Jews, those promises of God would be mute. My point is that Satan personally influences some people with his purpose, when his purpose is to destroy those things which are essential to the fulfillment of God's eternal plans. Almost all of the other people who go around doing great evil are being influenced by Satan's demons rather than Satan himself. But it was Satan who invaded Judas' heart and influenced him to betray Jesus so that he would be crucified. And so that then we come to the point of the betrayal itself. And that brings us to John 18. After Judas left the upper room, he went to the Jewish authorities and got his payment of 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. It's hard to say how much exactly that would be worth today because it would depend upon the silver coins which the Jews gave him. The value could be anywhere from 90 to $450. Um, most scholars put the value around $250, $260 in today's money. Uh, that tells me three things. One, that greedy people will settle for any price. Two, that the chief priest had absolutely, absolute disdain for Judas. They hated disloyalty. And as a betrayer, even when betraying one's enemy, uh, so they wouldn't give him any more than that. 
And third, they hated Jesus because that's all they thought he was worth. Uh, and not one of them ever realized that they were fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy right to the exact amount. So they arranged for a contingent of soldiers and officials from the chief priests to accompany Judas to the Garden of the Gethsemane. We're told in John 18.2 that Jesus had been there with the disciples many times. So Judas knew exactly where to find him. And according to Matthew 26.48, he told the officers and officials that he would kiss Judas as a sign of who it was they were to arrest. So they go to the garden with this big crowd, perhaps as many as 100 to 200 soldiers and the officials to arrest Jesus. According to Matthew 26, 49, Judas walked up to Jesus and gave him a big kiss of feigned affection on the cheek. That's what the Greek word used there means. It's a fervent, affectionate kiss. So it's continuing absolute hypocrisy. And then Luke tells us that Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Uh, Matthew tells us Jesus added, friend, do what you've come for. I mean, Jesus called him friend, even in the time of betrayal. But Judas' heart was satanic at that point. He was still pretending to love Jesus while betraying him for a few coins. And here in John 18, Jesus then asked the group, whom do you seek? And when they told him Jesus of Nazarene, he, said, he answered him, I am. And uh, they all fell down. And why did they fall down? Because even... Though he was saying, I'm the guy you're looking for, he's telling them, I'm Yahweh, God in flesh. So he asked them, again, whom do you seek? And once again, they said, Jesus and Nazarene, he told them again, I am he. In Greek, all it is is I am. Let me ask you a question. Is the act of Judas unique? Is it the only act of its kind? No. In Ezekiel 13.10, God speaks against false female prophets who were involved in murderous deceit. And he says, for handfuls of barley and fragments of bread, you have profaned me to my people to put to death some who should not die and to keep others alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. They're being bribed with food to give false testimony under oath, swearing by God's name against the innocent and on behalf of the guilty. And Amos 2.6 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, they're willing to sell righteous people into slavery for money and the poor for a pair of shoes. And I would suggest to you that men and women will always sell Jesus Christ for whatever they think is worth more. Judas sold Jesus for greed. People are still doing that with their ill-gotten gain, their lifestyle, everything. Why did Judas do it? Certainly there's malice, worldly ambition, revenge, hatred, rejection of what is pure, pride, ingratitude, anger. Most of all, though, it was greed, crass, worldly materialism. Let's talk for a moment about his death. James 1.14 says, But each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Judas was enticed by his own lust. Satan tempted him. But by the time he reached the point where Satan actually possessed him, Judas had long surrendered his will to his own lust for money and power. And so he sells him, and then it tells us that Judas, Matthew 27.3, when, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw this, that he had been condemned, that Jesus had been condemned. 
He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now someone might say, well, oh, Judas repented. That's not what it says. The Greek word used here that's translated felt remorse is not the Greek word for repentance. It's the word that means to regret, to feel sad about something that you did that you wish could have turned out differently. I spent a career arresting people who regretted what they did, but they didn't repent of their sins. They only wish they hadn't done, done it because the outcome was not what they expected. That was Judas. He felt bad. He regretted it. And so he says to them, he goes back and he throws this money. He says, I've sinned. And they, what's their response? They said, what's that to us? See to that yourself. In other words, we don't care. That's your problem. If you think you betrayed an innocent man, that's for you to deal with, not us. Keep in mind, these are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They didn't care about Judas' spiritual problem at all. He was just a tool to them. So Judas thought by the physical act of returning the money, he could relieve the conviction he felt, but he couldn't do it, so he threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and left. But his unforgiven heart screamed out for vengeance, and so he took that vengeance on himself. Verse 4 says he went away and hanged himself. Now over in Acts 1.18, it says, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Now, a lot of people can't reconcile those two passages, so let me see if I can help you. Uh, one explanation is that many scholars hold to is that Judas climbed up on a tree at the edge of a precipice, tied the rope to one of the limbs, put the noose around his neck, jumped off the branch head first, but either the knot was insufficient or the branch broke from the force of his weight suddenly falling, and so he fell over the precipice and his bowels burst on the rocks below. However, let me note that he could have climbed up on some kind of other tall structure and then jumped off head first with a rope around his neck, and if the rope or knot broke, the same thing could have happened without the necessity of a precipice. Uh, regardless of the exact details, because we know all Scripture is inspired by God, is infallible and inerrant, we know that Judas hung himself, but his body fell headfirst and his intestines burst open. Now, what did the chief priest do with all the money? Well, always the hypocritical legalist. They knew they couldn't return it to the temple treasury because it was blood money. All of a sudden, they're getting concerned about obeying the law. Did you notice that? They, back in you know, Deuteronomy 23.18 forbade putting the earnings of a prostitute in the temple treasury, so they understood that by extension, blood money was also prohibited. And so they take this money and they buy the potter's field, the very place that Judas hanged himself and designated it as a place to bury strangers. But the name of the place became commonly known as a field of blood. And so they fulfill the Old Testament prophecy with the 30 pieces of silver. Well, we're over time. I'm just going to have to stop. We, we just have a little bit more lessons to learn from Judas, but uh, I think you've learned enough lessons from Judas. So we will stop and pick it up, and next, next week we will move on. Finally, we finish the, the apostles, and we'll move on into the rest of the text. Okay, any questions or comments before we go? All right, let's close with prayer. Father, we come before you now and we, we, we think of 